Now we're turning to Psalm 20. Psalm 20. I think some while back we had a look at Psalm 16, and that took us a number of weeks with Psalm 20. We're going to focus in on this psalm just for one week. And we were thinking, uh, if memory serves correct, that's not always the best each day to the world's memory, the thinking of tough times, great God, and we, under that same theme, come to Psalm 20 today. So let's read it, shall we, as we share together. Father, we thank you that you still have a speaking voice. We thank you for the wonder of your word and for the blessing and glorious truth that it conveys to us. And so we ask, O Lord, that as we come together, that you would just by his spirit minister to every heart and life. No man, no preacher can do that, Lord. Only the Spirit of God, taking the Word of God, can bring life to each one of us. So Lord, hear our prayer and bless us together, and your people right around the world, not least those in persecuted lands. We pray that they too today might know this special help. We ask it in the Savior's name. Amen. Psalm 20, and this is what we read. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee, and send thee help from the sanctuary, and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all my offerings, and accept thy good sacrifices. Grant thee according to thine own heart, and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation, and in the name of our God we will set our banners the Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy arm, from his holy heaven. Let me read that again. Now I know that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down in form, but we are risen and stand firm. Say, Lord, let the King hear us when we call. Amen to God's precious truth. I was brought up on, our, on the authorised version, but uh, uh, over the years I've um, gone through different versions and thank God for them all, but uh, the AV is excellent, King James Version. Uh, but I don't read it as often now as I once did. So you have to forget the uh, slip up there with regard to that particular verse. Well, as I said, last time we were together, or the time before last anyway, we were thinking of the theme of tough times, great God. And we want to return to that this morning in this particular psalm, Psalm 20. It is the psalm of battle. It is the song that the children of Israel, I understand, usually sang when they went into the war. And I understand that Psalm 21 was the song that they sang after the battle. So 20 is when they went into it, 21 is when they came out of it. And in between, there's a tremendous amount to think of. Our key phrase this morning is a phrase that uh, is very, very particular and well known to us, I'm sure. 
And you find the day in verse 1. The day of trouble. The day of trouble. Now folks, was there ever a day when we are going through so much trouble? We think of the world internationally. COVID invaded every country on the, on the, on the planet, on the earth. We think of the trouble nationally with regard to Britain and uh, with regard to the shenanigans one could say in Parliament this week it's riveted so many people's attention it's been the day of trouble and certainly as I prayed it's the day of trouble for so many Christians who live in persecuted lands who are going through great difficulty and I trust and I hope that you, you pray for them and think about them it's impossible to think of every one of them but there are certain areas and certain lands and certain peoples that are worth remembering every day. And so then, it's the day of trouble. And keeping all those things in mind, I want specifically to think about the day of trouble, not so much internationally or nationally or even locally, but personally. Whatever troubles you and I might have, whatever difficulties you might be going through, this particular psalm is not only a challenge, but a real encouragement. I think in some ways it was the Israelis' national anthem, certainly when David penned these particular words. It deals with three subjects, a deal with trouble, a deal with trust, and a deal with triumph. Those three things, when brought together, give us an understanding as to what the psalm is all about. Now there's one expression that occurs three times. And you'll find it there in the translation that we've been reading from this morning. And the expression is, we will. Verse 5, we will rejoice in our salvation. Same verse, we will set up our banners. And then in verse 7, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now these particular expressions, mentioned three times in the psalm, and that which gives us a good understanding as to what the psalm is all about. The day of trouble, and yet the antithesis of all that, is that David encourages his people with full assurance to say, in spite of everything, we will. Now one of the things about trouble, as you know as well as I know, folks, is that trouble tends to understandably get us down. We often get overwhelmed by it. We can't see the wood for trees. We find ourselves in, in circumstances perhaps that are very difficult to, to see an end to. It's something that we all experience from one time or another. Maybe on this particular Sunday morning, there are troubles that you identify in your life, in your family, in your work, wherever, and you think to yourself, how am I going to get through? Well, the positivity of the psalm is this, we will. And it's fascinating just to have a look and to see what the psalmist, under the direction of God's Spirit, 
brings to us. So let's have a look at these three things, shall we? In verses 1 to 4, the expression is, we will rejoice. Now that seems to be a crazy kind of thing to talk about. I mean, you're in the middle of trouble, and David says to the troops and to the folk that are with them there, you need to rejoice. It is against normal thinking. It is something which seems to pull a plug. Because we find it difficult to rejoice when we're going through trouble. I mean, which one of us this morning says, Oh my, we're in trouble. Isn't that great? Hallelujah. I'd imagine very few, if any. So what then do we discover? Is David's thinking on it? Well, in verses 1 to 4, in the middle of his trouble, he gets his eyes on God. Remember the story of David and Goliath? The army saw giants. Goliath, but David saw God. Time and time again in David's own life, we, we find this reality when, when things are too big for him. The normal response in David's heart is to look to the Lord and find that God is a God of greater. So that in these verses 1 to 4, we discover that David says, we will rejoice because my focus is not on my trouble, or my circumstances, or my difficulties. It's there, it's real, it's genuine, it's powerful. But my focus is upon my God. And I look to him. Now it's interesting that in those four words, or four verses rather, in verses 1 to 4, we have a picture in David's mind, a wonderful picture of the God that he believes in. Just follow through with me for a moment, will you, in relation to David's view of God. Number one, he says that he believes in the God who speaks. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. That word here in our English uh, in the original, I understand, could also mean the Lord answer, hear or answer. It depends upon the accent, the little mark in the Hebrew, and it can be interpreted either way. So David says, in the day of trouble, I, I want to thank God that I believe in the God who speaks, the God who communicates to me, the God who shares with me his heart and his passion, and his encouragement. David says, I believe in a speaking God. He's the God who speaks, and he's the God who answers me. It's interesting that David uses the expression, the God of Jacob, isn't it? Many want to understand that he said the God of Abraham, that man of faith. Or the God of Isaac, that man of promise. But the God of Jacob? Someone said that Jacob was so crooked, he'd hide behind a corkscrew. And one can understand that. And yet, David says, not Abraham, not Isaac in this instance, but the God of Jacob. The God who straightened Jacob out in what a story that is earlier in the Old Testament there. The God who takes this crooked, deceitful, cowardly, 
individual who in so many ways uh, wasn't good for his family or for the nation but God took him made him straight and made him right and so then says David I'm rejoicing because I believe in a God who speaks who speaks into my situation see you notice in verse 1b and 2 there that he's a God who surrounds us a God who surrounds us he defends us says David he's like a wall or as in Job's case he's like a hedge that God has put a hedge around us and of course it was the devil's accusation wasn't it to, to God uh, you put a hedge around Job, Job so we can't attack him and God for a short while removed the hedge but here we have the whole understanding you see that the God that David believes in is the God who defends him and even more so sends him help from the sanctuary now when we talk about the sanctuary what do we mean we believe that God is omnipresent that God is everywhere nobody about that I know that sometimes when we come to pray and uh, one can understand what we do we say Lord we come into your presence but in reality we're always in God's presence but we know what we mean when we pray that we come into your presence we want to have a sense of your presence with us but here we discover don't we that God sends help from a place that David refers to as the sanctuary now if God is everywhere what is the sanctuary we can put away this that the sanctuary is God's immediate dwelling place would you allow that just to maybe sing into your mind and your thinking God's immediate dwelling place where God in his essential being lives he's present everywhere He's alive and present by his Holy Spirit in every Christian life. But here is David saying that from the sanctuary, from God's immediate dwelling place, he sent me up. Now I find that folks this morning a tremendous encouragement. That you and I are whatever situation we might find ourselves in, struggling with our hearts, wondering how things are going to turn out. David says that right from God's immediate dwelling place, he gives us help. Remember that wonderful prayer in Jonah chapter 2? Uh, it's an amazing chapter, is that chapter 2? Jonah swallowed by the great fish, often referred to as a whale. And in Jonah chapter 2, we find that, that he's on his knees. He didn't go into the downward journey, of course, he goes down to Joppa, and he goes down into the boat, and he goes down to the sea, you can read it there in chapter 1, and then when he gets down on his knees, things begin to change. And on his knees, chapter 2 records for us the prayer that he made. And Matthew Henry, that interesting, fascinating commentator, I'll just move this to the side of me. Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry says that Job's prayer 
was prayed in the lowest depths, but heard in the highest heights. And so, dear folk, this morning, the God that we believe in is a God who speaks, but he's a God who surrounds us. He allows things to happen from time to time to take away the edge or to remove a bit of the wall so that we are strengthened within our faith. But he's a God who surrounds us. He's right there with us in the day of trouble. Notice the third thing that's mentioned here. He's a God who strengthens us. He sends us help from the sanctuary, which is from Zion. Now, of course, Zion is an immediate reference to the city of Jerusalem. But it also is a reference to the new Jerusalem. God is in his immediate dwelling place, the sanctuary. But the place where God is, is what the Bible refers to as heaven. As heaven. So right from heaven, right to the Grange, or wherever we might live, God sends help. He sends help to your home. He sends help to your heart. He sends help to that trouble that you experience there. God is the God who, from heaven itself, brings us the answer. Now isn't that staggering? Isn't that amazing for us? He's the God who gives us poor strength into our lives. That even in our weakest moment, He is the one who gives us strength that we need. And perhaps this morning, though no one knows it, within your own heart you might feel so weak, so desperate, so down, so overwhelmed, you put on the good smile there, which uh, is an external expression of uh, conveying to others that things are not too bad. But inside, you and I need God's strength. And so we will rejoice as did, because the God that we believe in is a God who strengthens us. But further, notice in verse 3, He's a God who is satisfied. He remembers your sacrifices. He remembers your offerings. Later on we'll be coming around the Lord's table and thinking of our wonderful Saviour's sacrifice upon that cross. Dying for us so we might be saved from our sin, from our shame, and from heaven itself. Certainly as we remember the Lord's sacrifice, so he remembers us. But here is David talking about the remembrance of the sacrifices and offerings that God's people give. He's, he's rejoicing in that fact. But the God that we believe in is the God who, in reality, is satisfied with the sacrifice and offerings that we bring. The sacrifice of a yielded life, the offerings, the voluntary expression of our love for God and, and giving to God and to giving to God's work. God is the one who satisfies that. We freeze our frame for a moment and we ask ourselves, is God satisfied with my offerings and sacrifices? 
It was William Carey, the founder of modern missions, as some have put it, who said this. It's quite a staggering thing to think about momentarily uh, because it's hardly to happen. But this is what he said. I understand. He said on a particular occasion that he never sacrificed one thing for God. When I first read that, I thought to myself, what does this great missionary William Carey mean? And so I began to delve a little deeper into what he was saying. And I discovered this. I discovered that when he thought about God's sacrifice for him, and all that God had done for him, and all the blessing that God had brought to him, really, it overwhelmed us so much that it said it wasn't a sacrifice, really, for his life and ministry, was but a response to the goodness of God. And that's what David is saying here. David is saying, yes, the Lord sees your, your sacrifices and, and your offerings. There are Old Testament days that are burnt offerings, of course. But God is satisfied with the response of his people to his word, to his commands. I often say in my own heart, Thou, Lord, are you satisfied with me? So he's the God who speaks, the God who surrounds, and the God who strengthens, and the God who satisfies. And then we notice why David rejoices in verse 4. He's the God who supplies. He gives you the desires of your heart and fulfills his counsel. So here the God that David believes in is the God who, with regard to his own desires and longings, is, is going to meet them. And in and through them and other things, He's going to lead them in the way to the plan and in the plan that he has fallen. And so David rejoices in God because the Lord meets his every need. Isn't it wonderful to reflect upon how many times in days gone by God has met our need? I certainly could mentioned a quite number of things this morning uh, as a Christian minister and pastor and as a Christian how God meets a need and you can too and the Lord meets our need and he makes our plans succeed he begins to fulfill his plans in our lives now I know that we all know that God has got a plan for our life and that's absolutely true but whatever troubled circumstance you might find ourselves in, we say, well, Lord, even through this trouble, you have a purpose and a plan. I might not understand it. I might not be able to think my way through it. And Lord, you know, I've got the answer to the problem that's there. But I'm resting Trusting in your perfect plan. I know how good it is to know that, is it not? That God has a plan for our lives. 
love the story of the young fellow who after a church service went to one of the elders and told him that he felt that God was calling him to go to Brazil. And the elder, a very wise and godly man, said, that, that's rather interesting, isn't it? What has brought me to that conclusion? I'm interested in what you're saying. Well, said the young fellow, after the service this morning, uh, someone gave me a bar of Brazil nut chocolate. And I felt that that was the, the answer to what I was looking for, that I should go to Brazil. That's how he thought, dear Lord. The wise old elder said, son, I'm glad that God is calling you. I'm so glad that he didn't give you a Mars bar. <laughs> or we can transliterate that and say a galaxy. Some weird and wonderful ideas propounded by so many different folk on God's plan and God's will. There's no greater way of knowing the will of God than seeking to live close to him and seeking to be guided by his will. He will make all our plans succeed. He will give us the desires within our hearts that we need. We know there are all kinds of desires. It's a powerful force. It's the realm of desire. But when we surrender ourselves to Him and yield ourselves to Him, He gives us those desires wherein not only are we assured that those desires are for us and working us, but they're part of God's plan. Part of God's plan. We will rejoice. You can understand David saying this in the midst of trouble because he believes in the God who meets his need and the God who is going to see him through. I love an expression in Psalm 91 verse 15 where the psalmist says there, I will be with you in the day of trouble. So how do we handle their trouble? Number one, we will rejoice. So I ask you the question, as I ask myself the question this morning, am I really rejoicing? I'm really resting and trusting him, allowing him to work in my life. Now then, as we move down the chapter and song, we discover this, not only do we rejoice as David, but we will, as the word said, set up our banners. So we will rejoice and we will raise our banner. I ask you folks this morning, what does an Englishman know about banners? Well, I know a bit more now after 53 years living in Ireland than what I did when I first came here. Believe me, I do. And as much I don't understand, I knew, but I know a little bit more. In the northeast of England, uh, on the second Saturday, in the county of Durham, and in Durham City itself, they have a great banner wave. I come from a mining village, or was a mining village, and so the miners in the county of Durham gather still been yesterday, they gather still with their banners, a lot of speechifying from the politicians, which is always interesting, or amusing, or annoying, as the case might be. And so, you know, I got a little taste of banner carrying there, 
200,000 people gathered yesterday just to raise the banner. Mind you, when we, we came here in 1969, I thought I'd seen what it meant to raise banners because my father would take me along to Durham to the big meeting there, but of course uh, someone invited me on the very first year that we were here to come along to the 12th of July. So I'll tell you, that was an education for me. I'll tell you, it really was. And I thought it was just going to be there a couple of hours. But of course, my wife and I, little boy, were in Belfast for most of the day. I knew nothing then about banners at all. Nothing at all. In those early days, of course it would be true now, I would go anywhere to preach the gospel to anybody, anytime. No problem with that. And I'd only been in the country knowing nothing about Orangism, using this as an illustration. And I was invited to Canalbana. I couldn't even pronounce it properly then. I called it Carnalbana. You know, you know Canalbana, I'm not too far from one. And I was invited to speak to the black history. Now, folks, I didn't have a clue. As to what the black Presbyterian were. So, literally, as an ignorant Englishman, I turned up to preach, thinking that I'm going to speak to folk with black faces. That's how incredulous I was in my thinking. So, I get on this black Presbyterian, and of course, there's not a black face in sight. It's quite an interesting experience for me. Fast forward that number of years, and uh, I'm invited again, I'm doing a mission up the Shackle Road, and uh, um, one evening the Black Preceptory invited along to the evening, and we're so glad to have the men there. And as the men and uh, their wives came, I told them the story about my introduction into the Black Preceptory, well, you can imagine the reaction. In that little church they roared with laughter. And I joined them in my thinking because uh, it was so incredulous to say the least. So over the years, as I've said, I've, I've known a little about what banner waving is. I know that there are dangers in the whole business of flag waving, and we, we all do, don't we? And yet, David talks about Lifting the banner. And though it may seem out of the question that uh, David knew anything about the 12th of July to some, he knew what it meant to lift the banner. So in, in the day of trouble, then, in the day of trouble, he not only rejoices, but he lifts up his banner. We will raise our banner. We lifted the banner, and he said, God listens. I love that verse in Exodus 17, verse 20, 15 there, where it says, David says, The Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nissai. To Psalm 22, verse 48, You arm me with strength for the battle. And so it's important for us, when we Going through trouble and difficulty and hardship, it's important for us to just lift up our banner. 
In the name of the Lord, and the Lord's name in the Jewish mind stood for all that he was and all his character. In God's name, I'm lifting my banner and I'm seeking to, to make my stand in the midst of the situation where I find myself in. Raising the banner. Can I mention three references to the banner in Scripture? Won't go into them because there isn't time, but uh, in Isaiah 13, verse 2, there, Isaiah talks about the banner on a hill. On the high mountain, he talks about our witness. So, in, in the midst of trouble and difficulty, we know that we send out silent messages by the way we respond, by the way that we react to the situation we find ourselves in. And how we react to trouble can be positive or negative. Now our immediate reaction, of course, is so often, depending on the trouble, shock, dismay, fear, worry. That's understandable. But how we react and how we raise our banner when we're going through it a great witness in itself, the banner on a hill. No, folks, so often we feel that we're witnessing just with our, our words, but our life is a greater point of witness, is it not? Folk see us, they know us in a, in a small community of a so like Grange, they, they know us very well, but it's expanding and developing, yes. And they're looking at Christians. They are saying, how do these Christians react? And they're going through all that. And so there's the banner on the hill. And, and then in Solomon 2 verse 4, there's that well-known banner, the banner on the house. He brought me into his banner house, and his banner over me is love. This wasn't so much witness, but wonder. That he's invited to the King of Kings to the banner house that he might raise his banner and experience in a fresh way the goodness and blessing of God. A banner of the house. Know how we need such a banner in our own homes because so many of your homes under great pressure can be somewhat fractious to say the least. And then, of course, there's no time to think about it. There's the banner in the heat of battle. Psalm 60, verse 4. God has given us a banner. So that when we're in the middle of the battle, we need to lift up that banner and say, we're trusting in God, we're depending upon God, and the Lord is in the middle of so much horror and difficulty at the moment. I'm lifting up the banner. And that's why it's important, is it not, not only for us to lift up the banner, but for those that we know and love so well in family and in church family particularly, to help us to lift up that banner. I understand that in, in the American Civil War, 1861-65, there was a particular battle. The North, as you know, were engaged with the South. It was a very sad time for America. <coughs> the country was torn apart. And on this particular occasion, 
the northern army was so strong that they were pushing the, the southern army right back. And it was seen at that particular moment that the northern army was certainly going to win. And there was, you might have understood, a little boy, a little drummer boy who, who saw the oncoming enemy to him and he put down his drum because the banner carrier had been wounded, the flag had been dropped. And so the little boy put down his drum very quickly, ran to the flag, got his hand around the pole, one could picture the scene, and digs the pole in the ground, and the flag is flying there, the enemy are attacking. The little boy is frightened, the little boy thinks and knows that it could be his end, but he's going to do the right thing and raise his banner. And amazingly, the retreating troops see the courage of the wee lad and they turn. They win the day. All because the little lad stood in the heat of battle, lifted the battle. So here is David saying in the day of trouble, folks, you've got to raise the value. You've got to say, I'm not the best Christian in the world. I feel with my own heart I may be the weakest Christian in the world, but I'm making my stand and I'm lifting my banner. A lot of banner lifting this week, but for believers, the banner of the cross is still as powerful as ever. We will rejoice. We will raise our man. And then notice thirdly, and very, very briefly, as time has gone, Psalmist says in verse 7, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That word remember is a fascinating word. And in, in the new translations, it is translated like this, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. To remember God's name means more than just using that expression. It means that, Lord, we're trusting you in our trouble, in our battle, resting and relying upon you. That's what David is saying. Now, notice the contrast here in the verse. He said, there are some that trust in chariots, and there are some that trust in horses. But we will remember, or trust in, the name of the Lord our God. Now, I just think of that for a moment now. He said there are those that are trusted in the material, the chariot. Israel in this time didn't have chariots. They were on, they did not know how. In David's day, from what I can understand. But the folk was saying now, look, in a battle, in a fight, surely that which is material will meet the need. But does it? Trust in the animal. Well, as a material, we believe as Christians that man is more than an animal made in the image of God originally. But assuming for a moment that man is just an animal, and we believe more than man, as I said, in our day, in our day, there are so many that say, he'll do it. She'll do it. 
Remember when I first came living in the Belfast area, I would often hear concerning a certain person words like this, he's our mom, he's our mom. Folks, this is the Christian position. Whatever is happening in our world, internationally or in our lives personally, we're not going to trust the material, a better house, a better car, all those things can be important of course, but we're not trusting in those. And we're not trusting in man. It's been some week, hasn't it, in British government? Where has the problem been? I'm sure there have been a number of problems, as you know, but the basic problem is can we trust? Can we trust? And David is saying, look, you trust in the animal of your life, you trust the material in your life, but I'm going to trust God. I'm going to rest on God. The trust that they gave in verse 7, the stand that they made when others are falling down, I'm going to make my stand because Lord, you're the one who delivers me, saves me. And let the king hear us as they respond to David's message. When we call, what are they calling? Lord, I trust in you. And so, dear friends, this morning, in the day of trouble, I don't know your situation, obviously. We need to rejoice who God is. We need to raise our banner in the name of the Lord. And we need to rejoice and raise and remember trust Him all that God is. I find the psalm so encouraging the way to deal with trouble. David gives the answer. Let's pray together and then we'll sing Our Father, we know that David lived a long time ago. And yet what he said and what he wrote and what he conveys to us is as relevant now as it was in his day. You know that we're in trouble, Lord, in this world. The world's in a mess. We're waiting for the king to come back. Lord, in the meantime, we want to rejoice in all that you are, to raise our banners as Christians and declare our faith in the living Lord, and daily remember, trust in the name of the Lord our God. And for those dear friends who may be on the internet or here in the building, who are in a difficult place in a situation Lord that's difficult to see any way out we ask our Father that your living word might become an increased reality within our lives and this week Father all the speeches and the marches and the flag flying we do pray that you would help peace 
to be maintained. You are Lord. I'm trusting you. In Jesus' name.